Welcome to 66 Lessons for Life, the weekly radio program recorded live at the Naples Conference Center in Naples, Florida. Taught by our teacher, John Garepa, an attorney who guides us in the way of wisdom with a biblical worldview. You're invited to join us for the study. We're in the Gospel of John, chapter 12. I wanted to begin and go over the parts of the old outline first before I begin on the, the new outline. Specifically, I want to read a few verses in John chapter 12. I want to read verses 37 to 41. So if you would turn and follow along as I read it. Verse 37, even after, after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their hearts and deadened, blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts, so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. And so what we see here is John uh, citing the prophecy of Isaiah 800 years before, and through that prophecy indicating that Isaiah saw who Jesus was, saw who Jesus would be, saw that Jesus would come to this world as the Son of God, God himself. And this is an extraordinary admission to make in the first century, as you can imagine. Hearing this in the first century, certainly the Jewish people would be astonished to see that God himself would have walked with him. And so we see this solemn warning that when you come face to face with the power of God, when you come face to face with the miracles and the signs, when you come face to face with prophecy that was hundreds of years old being revealed and you reject it and you walk away from it, at some point, the solemn justice of God brings the curtain down. It's over. And God says, this is what you want. This is where you want to be. This is how your hearts are. Fine. I will allow you to go in that way. This is a very sobering uh, passage and sobering even theologically for us. I spoke to you last week about Pharaoh, how God gave Pharaoh time before God said, that's what you want. I'll harden your heart then you won't be able to change. And so what you understand here is this all flows within Jesus saying, walk in the light while you have the light. You don't have the light forever because at some point the darkness will envelop you. And this is something we have to speak to the world to let them know that God in his sovereign justice brings the curtain down. Now somebody asked me in the early class, well, it seems like this is very cruel on God's part. It seems like God is awfully harsh. And, and I said, no, that's exactly the opposite. Because every single one of us are dead men walking. We're all dead. It's only because God has given us the lifesaver that requires us to lift our arms and recognize that we need it. And then God saves us. What you see here is that when people refuse to accept it, refuse to acknowledge who God is, that God says, fine. You don't want the lifesaver, you won't get the lifesaver. And in fact, I cited a verse last week that I'd like to take a, read that again. Re, uh, follow 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 
This is all part as we ramp up into the new lesson. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11. This is all about what will happen in the last days. And we'll start with verse 9. The coming of the lawless one, and the lawless one is the Antichrist. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders. And in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned, that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. What a powerful verse. What does it mean? It tells you what it means. It's that when you live in the lie, when you live in the darkness, when you forsake God, and it goes on, and God has tried to reach you, and you refuse to see to acknowledge the miracles and the power of the Holy Spirit, and it goes on and on, and what will happen? Ultimately, Satan will raise up the Antichrist. And you wonder, when you read these things, how can the world, how can it fall for this? How can it fall for this? Well, what will happen will be there will be counterfeit miracles and signs. You know that. You know that from, from seeing Exodus. You saw with, with the magicians in Pharaoh's court did that they were able to take uh, their rods and turn them into snakes and take uh, water and turn it into blood. They certainly couldn't do it on, this, on the level that, that God did with Moses, but they were able to counterfeit these miracles. How does that happen? Satan has power. And what happens is at some point in time, People are going to be drawn to satanic things. They will believe a lie. And what you see here is God brings down the curtain. You want to believe a lie? You want to live in the darkness? You want to be drawn to the darkness? And so what happens here at some point in time, God says, enough. Enough. It's over. And so you see here in this chapter, we've seen that uh, with the Jewish people, with the leadership of the Jewish people, uh, refusing to accept Jesus, and Jesus said, fine, you Pharisees, you leaders of Israel, this is what you want, it's over. Now your heart is hardened. You will not be able to deviate. This is what you will be. You are under judgment. Incredible. Um, and so what we see here now is John citing these verses in Isaiah. He will pull the verses of Isaiah out uh, because God has revealed to him that when Isaiah saw that 800 years before, that that vision that, that he saw was a vision of what Jesus would be. And so let's read the original. Turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. And as I set this up, Isaiah is writing this. He's bemoaning the fact that King Uzziah has died. He was a great king, a righteous man, a holy man. He has died, and now he's bemoaning the fact that the person who was succeeding Uzziah is a young person who does not have uh, the same temperament, and he's, he's bewailing the fact that Israel will be lost, and now God is stepping into the breach to speak to him. Verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling 
to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. All of this, all of this is a picture of Jesus Christ. And so what you see here is Isaiah has been given a picture of God. Now, other people have seen shadows of God. Moses saw a shadow of God as it passed between the cliffs of the rock. But no one had ever seen a real image of God until this, this image. And this is uh, an incredible sight as you see him uh, and you see what it means. And so uh, John is saying this image applies to Jesus. This is who Jesus looks like right now sitting on high. And so what he's indicating is that Jesus is God himself. Now, this is not the first time. It is not the first time, nor is it the last time, that Jesus will be recognized as God himself. This is important theologically for you to understand because you're going to hear this from other people. Well, Jesus was a great man. Jesus was a good prophet. Jesus was a good teacher. But come on. Jesus never said he was God. Are you kidding me? What Bible are you reading? All right? I mean, you know, you need to be able to inform yourself and to inform others when people make these misstatements. Let's just take a, a, a look at a few uh, citations here. Turn to John chapter 1. Look at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, capitalized, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that light, life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood. That word, that light, is Jesus Christ. Amen. He was there at the very beginning. And in, in effect, he was the creative agent designated by God the Father to create this entire universe. Uh, and so you recognize when somebody says to you, well, come on, he doesn't say he's God. Really? Read your Bible. Now turn to John chapter 8, verse 58. Verse 57, we'll start with. Actually, we'll start with 56. <laughs> if I keep sitting here, we may go back to verse 1. Verse, verse, verse 56. And this is Jesus speaking. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the sight of thought of seeing my day he saw it and was glad they replied you are not yet 50 years old the Jews said to him and you have seen Abraham verse 58 I tell you the truth Jesus answered before Abraham was born 
I am. Now those those words, crazy Jesus, I am, that was so carefully selected. If you were a Jew and you heard somebody say, I am, I am, in this context, the hair on the back of your neck should stand up. Because it would make you recall what, what God said to Moses when Moses said, I'm going to go back to these Jewish people. They're going to want to know who you are. Who are you? What's your name? You tell them, I am that I am sent me. I am that I am sent me. Only God speaks like that. Alpha, Omega, beginning and end. There's no other discussion. And so you see Jesus saying that before Abraham, I am. And so you understand, Jesus made it absolutely clear. He's God. Don't confuse yourself or let others be confused. There's no question about it. It's even more clear. Turn to John chapter 20, verse 27. This is Jesus now confronting Thomas, who refused to believe because he had been missing. And finally, he comes face to face with the risen Lord. In verse 27, Thomas says, Jesus said, Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Verse 28, Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And so there you have it. Thomas says, My Lord, my God. And, and Jesus confirms it as to who he is. So make no mistake about it. Make no mistake about it. Jesus is very clearly articulating that he is God himself. And this is important because this is, the, this is being written by John at a time when it would be astonishing for people to recognize that in fact a man, a man could, could be God, that he could be incarnated as God. And so now you get this image of who God is sitting on the throne and, and, and John is making the metaphorical connection that that vision that he saw is Jesus and that Jesus sits on the throne. And it's very important for you to understand what John is conveying uh, as he interprets what Isaiah saw. And that's what you're seeing here. And so there are four basic elements of God that we have involved here. First, we find God sitting on a throne. That is the first element of God, meaning a sovereignty, a sovereignty, a king of the universe, of all things, in control of all things, responsible for all things. And so, sure, the king Uzziah was a good king, and, and now somebody else comes in, but it doesn't matter. It's because God is in charge. And that's the first thing you need to know for your own lives, as you're going through difficult times, and you have questions, Lord, where am I headed? What's my future? I just want to tell you this. God is in charge. Do you Amen. think when Sister Tammy came into this church three months ago and went to the front to have those kids presented, not knowing where she would be, not knowing how she would get out of that trailer, how she knew what would happen next. And when Hayes said, is your family and friends here and nobody stood up, did she know that sitting here in this class and in the eight o'clock class were hundreds of people waiting to stand up for her because of God? Amen. It's the same for you. 
in your life. I want you to know this. God doesn't forget you. You're not an accident. You're not lost. He's there on the throne. And this is so powerful to me as I get this image of God sitting in control of all things. It doesn't matter who the king of Israel is. It doesn't matter who the president of the United States is. It doesn't matter who's in Congress. What matters is that God is in control. And for people like us who give our hearts to God, he will protect us. He will take care of us. That's why we have hope. That's why we know where our future is. Amen. You can clap for that. Absolutely. Really. Really. That's why the day after the election, you don't have to find a bridge to jump off. Okay? All right? You don't even have to call me to have me pray for you because you're in bed and you can't get out of bed. I'm telling you right now, God is on his throne. He is on his throne. He is in control. And the older I get, the more I recognize it as I see it in, in his people's lives. He takes care of them. He protects them. He's there to the end. Do not lose control of that. Do not lose sight of that. That's a, a key thing for you to understand. The second thing that, that John is pointing to that Isaiah saw was that he sees that God's train is being recognized. This train uh, that, that is written about in Isaiah that fills the entire temple. The entire temple is filled up with every aspect of this part of God's entourage. His robes, his train, filling every part of the temple. Uh, and the temple shaking and quaking uh, because of the power of God. What does it mean as you see that? Uh, it means that, that there is no room for anybody else in the kingdom of God as a leader other than Jesus Christ and God our Father. No room for anybody else. No place for anybody else to be in control. There is only one. And any time you hear any kind of a religion that talks about the fact that there's somebody else, that somebody else has a, has a responsibility, that there may be some other creative uh, agents. I mean, when you talk about the Muslims, they talk about it. When you talk about the Mormonism, they talk about it. It's all for nothing. It's zero. All right? It's zero. There is only one. He is in control, and his train fills the very uh, extent of the entire temple. And I'll give you other verses to support this. Turn to Isaiah 42. And all of this comes out of the Gospel of John. And that's why we study the Gospel of John first. Isaiah 42. Verse 8. Actually, I'm going to start with verse 6. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is just grabbing my ear while I'm talking. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open the eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison. And to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. How do you like that? I'm the Lord. I am God. I will not, and I will not allow my praise to be given to someone else. I am sovereign in every aspect. Uh, and, and so often we refuse to understand the sovereign aspect of God. 
And you see it in this chapter when God says, okay, you don't want to believe Jesus? You don't want to believe the miracles? You don't want to believe the prophecies? You don't want to believe the signs? You're hating him? You're despising him? Fine. The curtain comes down. The curtain comes down. I've hardened your heart. You're under judgment. And, now, and so you see this. Now turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, you know, several years ago, uh, Oprah Winfrey uh, went on national television and said that, frankly, she really wasn't a Christian anymore because she decided sitting in church, what kind of God is it that would be jealous of me, Oprah Winfrey? And all I could say, folks, is we need to give Oprah a remedial education Amen. in theology. That is such an ignorant statement to make. Uh, and all you have to have is a smattering, a smattering of understanding of what this is about. In these verses, God is demonstrating he's sovereign God. He created you out of the dust. He called you and gave you the chance to be saved. You were lost forever, Oprah. Lost forever, but for your chance to rise up, lift your hand from the muck and mire of your life, and ask God to save you. And God in his sovereignty and grace and love pours his grace and salvation to you. And now you have the temerity to what? Worship somebody else? Worship an idol? And by the way, look, don't think that this idol we're talking about is like a little plastic Jesus on your dashboard. Okay? That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about all the things of humanity that, that you know, get involved in our lives. The obsessions, the materialism, the lusts, all right? In every possible way, the, the focusing of me, me, I, I, and elevating the I instead of elevating God. And so you see here, God making it very clear, he will not put up with this. And don't mistake these verses that say, I will punish uh, the, the subsequent generations for the sins of the Father. Somebody had that dead wrong this morning, and I want to make sure I make that clear to you. That does not mean that if you commit sins or your grandfather committed a whole set of sins and detested God, that God will punish the subsequent generation because your grandfather was an evil person. That's wrong. What this means is, is that often in evil families... What you see is a legacy of evil. Meaning what? Your grandfather was a bum. He lived an improper life. And it follows along. People tend to swim in the same pigsty. And so what happens is, subsequent generations sinning on their own because they've got this legacy of evil that permeated 
God punishes. Each one of us stands alone. And there's other verses that I could give you that it's very clear. God does not punish the innocent for the guilty. God would never do that. So don't mistake these verses or interpret them in, in any way. And so what it's saying here is Jesus has to be the Lord of your life. Amen? Amen. Has to be the Lord of your life. That's what John is conveying in this whole section of writing. That these Pharisees, these leaders, did not get it, did not understand it. That only Jesus could be God of their lives. That Jesus had called to be in charge of everything, and they have forsaken it. Turn also to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. This unique partnership of God the Father with God the Son. And so you understand it in every possible way that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Jesus Christ is God himself. Make no mistake about it. This is not some mere prophet. This is not some mere teacher. This is not just a good man. This is God himself, and the Pharisees lost it. Turn also to Philippians chapter 2. One of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. Therefore, God exalted him, that's Jesus, to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the congregation said, Amen. Exactly. And so what you understand there is that was the prophecy, that was the prophecy given 800 years before, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow, Every heart would bow. And so when Jesus came, that's what God expected to be done. And it wasn't done because of evil in the world, because of, of hearts that would not submit to God. But I'm going to tell you something. There will come a time when Jesus come back, comes back if that's what will happen. Every knee, every believer in the world will come back. Because when Jesus comes back, he's not coming back as the baby in the manger. He's coming back as the Lion of Judah. And there's going to be some serious, serious things taking place here in this world uh, in, in a way in which it'll be unbelievable as you see this. And so the third element, the third element that you see here that, that's taking place, that Isaiah sees, the third element is a vision of angelic beings that wait on God to do his bidding. These cherubim, these seraphs, are, are, are amazing. These creatures sit right next to the throne of God and they cover themselves. They cover themselves with their wings. And what it means is they are eschewing any personal elevation. Don't look at us. Don't look at us. We're not important. You look to God. I'm covering myself. 
I don't want to be seen. I don't want you to look at me. I don't want to be lifted up. I want only God to be lifted up. And this, my friends, is exactly the way God expects us to serve. All right? I mean, unfortunately, I see, I see people, um, and, and you see it all the time on television. You see people on television, a lot of these televangelists, constantly lifting themselves up, raising themselves up, uh, and, and indicating that they need more and more and more praise from people in the world to let them know how important they are. I need to have a Gulfstream jet airplane. I need to have $5,000 suits. Uh, I need to be driving a Rolls Royce. Why? Well, because I need it, because God wants me to have it. God doesn't want you to have it. That's you wanting it, because you want to lift up yourself. You want to be important. You want people to say, oh, look at that guy, how great he is. Look how, how he touches people's hearts. If you want to see what's exactly the opposite of what God wants, I've just given you the recipe of how God wants you to serve. He wants you to serve in anonymity. It's not about you. It's not about you. It's about him. And you see this, and it's exactly opposite. God's teaching us a lesson here. He's teaching you a lesson. If God has given you gifts, God has given you talents, God expects you to use that for him, not to raise yourself up. Are you kidding me? Look, if God has given you a gift of music, uh, that you're able to, to uh, do something musically, uh, and you go on stage and you perform, don't sit there basking in the spotlight going, yeah, Dad, let me hear more. I love it when you tell me how good I am. Come on, that's not God. You're not worshiping God. Bow your head. Bow your head and you see it. You see the people who respond like that and your heart is touched because you know it's the Holy Spirit that's lifting them up. And it's the same way. Do you think, how do you think I feel here that here I am up here teaching? Do you think I should, I'm, I say to myself, oh, John, wow, we, you're a pretty smart guy. You know, you're a pretty smart guy. And, and, and you know, instead... I think back that but for the grace of God that grabbed me by the scruff of my neck 17, months, 17 years ago to bring me to a position like this, I have no idea what I'd be doing. I'd be wasting my life on a golf course. All right? I'd be wasting, but God, get in his grace, decided I needed to do this. And so to the extent that he brings me here and allows me to do this, whatever he does through me is his glory. It's not me. It's not me. By the way, don't say this guy's fake. He's a fake, humble person. It's not humility. It's the truth. And that's what you have to get through your life. You have to get this drilled down that when, honestly, when God uses you in some way, you bow to him. You say, Lord, it is your will. Let me do what you can do. And, you know, if you had a chance to come out to that funeral that we did this week for Sandy Hart, you would have heard me speak about that. Really, which is what I said about that dear sister. That in fact, this is a woman who came to, to, to the class as we started the new class eight years ago. Came, and in the first week, I didn't know who would come. I didn't even know if a single person would come out. Luckily, Ed and Mary Lee came uh, because they, they wanted to be kind to us to make sure we had somebody there. But who knew? Nobody would come to this, this new class. It was dark. It's dark as you, you come to church. All I saw on the way to church were all these critters with their eyes wide open looking on the road. And I'm thinking, who is going to come to church? And yet this lady was there and God put on her heart that she needed to give herself to the Lord. 
and to be a, a volunteer for us. And she took over all the things that you see that we do here. Uh, Bev does in the back all those incredible responsibilities, the name tags and the, the, uh, all, all the sign-up sheets, uh, all the volunteer forms, all the prayer cards. It's enormous, that kind of work. And she, and she gave herself to this, and she did it every single week, year after year. She never stopped. And when you would come into class, she would, I was, she, I was, she would be the first person I would see. And she would come to me. She would grab me. She would hug me. She would give me a kiss. I can still remember how she kissed me. She wouldn't just give you a, a, an empty peck. She would give you a kiss that would go like this. Mm. All right? It was a real kiss. All right? It wasn't an air kiss. It was a real kiss. And I knew this. You see, God was speaking to me through this woman. He was saying, you see, John, you're worried. You're worried. Nobody was going to show up. I'm in charge. Not you. I'm in charge. Amen. There's your volunteer. There's the people. And there she was, year after year after year until the Lord called her home. What a powerful message that is. And that's Ephesians 2.10. That's what it's about. That's why God has called you. That's why we have been privileged to help this dear woman. What do you think it's about? It, it, you think that we're, this is just a charitable event? We saw somebody and we, you know, our hearts were touched in charity? No! You see Ephesians 2.10 in place here, where God weighs on your heart through the Holy Spirit that you are the hands and feet of Jesus, that you have to serve him, and you have to serve him in every possible way. And I don't care if it's a single brick or a load of bricks. You got that? Whatever it is, God says you take your brick, your gift, your talent, and you put it towards the work of God. And then what you see is you see the evidence of the kingdom of God coming before you, that you have changed forever. Because you're doing God's work, you're changed forever. Four little kids who are now going to live in a house as opposed to a 600-square-foot trailer. All right? Now you see that, and you know that God has used you in a powerful way to effectuate change in a way that couldn't take place if we sat here and had a committee meeting. All right? Let's have a committee meeting. All right? Committee meetings. You don't need a committee meeting when the Holy Spirit is involved. Amen? It's like I said before. When she came into church, she presented those kids, uh, and Hayes said, well, I'd like to have your family and friends stand up, and not a single person stood up. I mentioned that to Hayes about three weeks ago. He put his head down and winced. He remembered it. He understood. That was a painful event for him to see it. But I knew, you see, and I knew that God was touching my heart, that he was touching the hearts of other people. That it was like God is saying to me, you are her family. You're her family. You're the hands and feet of me. You are responsible to do my will. And so you see what God says. How God wants us to understand these words and lift, lift out these words. That is who God is. That is who Jesus is. That was this image. And so the last thing that you see in this uh, vision of Isaiah that, that John is referring to is the way worship is given to God. Worship is given to God. They're calling out. The angels are calling out one to another, holy, holy, holy. And the words are ringing the temple. And the doorposts are shaking. And every possible part of the temple is shaking. Holy, holy, holy God. And you understand what a great privilege we have to serve him. The gifts that he's given us to serve him. Can you imagine? Here you are 
who would have been lost forever, stuck in the mire of sin, but for the grace of Jesus Christ, who gave you salvation. And not only did he give you salvation, he gave you the chance to do things that would change the lives of people forever. I give you Exhibit A. Did you ever think you would have a part of that? Did you ever? Honestly, did you ever? It's the kind of thing that drives you to your knees, puts your face in the dust, and says, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, Lord. I'm not worthy of what you've done for me. I'm not worthy of the gifts that you've given me. And yet he pours more into you. Grace, he's a jealous God. Not jealous the way you think jealous. He's sovereign God, deserving to be worshipped in every possible way. Let's close. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for the words that you've given us. Lord, help these words to resonate in our heart this week. Give us a greater understanding of the power and sovereignty of you, Lord, and Jesus Christ as we see these images displayed in front of us. Help us to get closer to you, Lord, and to become more part of what you want for us as we become your hands and feet and worship you the way you want. Bless our people. Protect them this week. And be with them to come back safely next week to continue the study of your word. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for listening to 66 Lessons for Life, the men's Bible study taught by John Garippa and recorded live at the Naples Conference Center in Naples, Florida. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding, so that you, the man of God, would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. For more information about the program or attending the Naples Men's Bible Study at the Naples Conference Center, go to our website at 66lessonsforlife.com.